pages of the Bible are filled with prophecies and visions that have both inspired and puzzled believers throughout the ages. Yet, many times, these messages have been interpreted or overlooked. Today, not only will we sit down with a leading Bible scholar to bring clarity to these ancient prophecies, but also a special treat awaits. Stay tuned for an exclusive book giveaway that promises to deepen your understanding. As we explore together, remember, the key to the future often lies in understanding the past. Dive deep with us into the rich tapestry of biblical prophecy. Hello, everyone. This is What's Your Pastor and Tell You. Today, I am on with Dr. Brian Irwin. We're going to talk about the end times, premillennialism, dispensationalism, all that fun stuff, the, the mark of the beast. How are you doing today, Dr. Irwin? I'm great, thank you. Nice to be with you. Awesome. All right. So, can you give people a little bit about your background? Sure. Uh, I am a professor, an associate professor of Old Testament at Knox College, which is a Presbyterian seminary at the University of Toronto, and we are one of seven seminaries in a theological consortium embedded in a public university in Canada, and uh, I teach Old Testament here, been here since 2004. If you're looking to do a master's degree or a doctorate degree, it's a fabulous place to do it. Toronto's a nice city, great resources at the university, seven theological colleges to choose from, and all the faculty there that can contribute to your education. And... Uh, so that's what I do. I teach uh, Old Testament. I grew up uh, in the Plymouth Brethren uh, in, a, in a church that grew out of that uh, movement. So I grew up in a dispensationalist context. After high school, I spent a year in Bible school and then went off, went to the University of Toronto in political science and Near Eastern studies and then to Jerusalem at what is now Jerusalem University College, where I studied historical geography of ancient Israel. And I just fell in love with, I was thinking about the diplomatic service, but then I realized that uh, diplomacy wasn't all cocktail parties and tuxedos. It was processing visa applications in some little gray cubicle. So I fell in love with the Old Testament and history and archaeology while I was in Jerusalem, and I had to wow. continue that. So I came back to Toronto to Wycliffe College, which is an evangelical Anglican school at University of Toronto, and did a master's and a doctorate there. And um, and that sort of eventually found my way back to Toronto after a teaching stint in New York City. And uh, this is where I am today. So I love doing, uh, I still like ancient Israelite religion and history and archaeology. Mm -hmm. But uh, being in a seminary, I focus a lot on reading the final form of scripture, paying attention to the original context. And um, yeah, the final form of scripture, narrative interpretation. And I'm working right now, uh, now that this book has been published, I'm working on a commentary on Joel and Amos for the Apollos mm. Old Testament commentary series. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that's really great stuff. So today we've got a special feature here. We have a book giveaway after dispensationalism, reading the Bible for the end of the world. And this is Dr. Irwin's work here. And I would say this is easily the best uh, end times book that I've read. And I was, I was very impressed. I learned a lot. And that says a lot considering <clears throat> there isn't a lot of topics where I can read it and I go, wow, you know, I've never heard that before. 
So uh, a great read. Also, make sure everybody to watch till the end because we're going to show you how to get the book and we'll send it to someone. Uh, so make sure to watch till the end to hear the rules. Okay, Dr. Irwin, can you give us just a summary of the book? Sure. Um, it's basically, it's three parts. The first part is, well, I'll tell you why I got to writing it first. There, I found uh, in my own experience, I grew up in a dispensationalist context. I understood the end time story, the kind that you would read mm -hmm. in Hallensey's Late Great Planet Earth or the Left Behind series, that sort of thing. But I, I started to have questions about how you get there from scripture. Um, and so I wrote it for people like myself who were going through that um, experience. But I was also I also wrote it because I was encountering people at seminary who were not dispensationalists, who didn't really have a lot of appreciation for for dispensationalists. I actually found them kind of frustrating, and uh, but they didn't have anything to offer when it came to end times. They didn't want to touch Daniel or Revelation because they were just baffled by it. So that's what set up the book. It was for those people who weren't dispensationalists but didn't know what to do with this material, and for those who were but didn't weren't quite convinced they could find it in Scripture. So it's three sections to the book. The first goes through the history of end time speculation and how since the early days of the church, uh, and even before that within Judaism, what was thought about the end times. And uh, then it moves into uh, dispensationalism, what it is, how it works. It's a, it's a theological system that has rules and you get to certain results because you're, you're applying a theological system like like any other theological system. Mm -hmm. And then uh, from there, I go to the difference between prophecy and apocalyptic, because that to me is a key point at which um, you can go one way or the other. And so I, the middle part of the book is about prophecy, what it is, the context in which it arose, the message it bore to God's people, and apocalyptic as a different literary genre that looks kind of like prophecy, a lot of sort of superficial similarities, and, mm. you know, what the context in which it arose and what it sought to do. And then I didn't want to leave people sort of just on their own uh, without a, any next steps. So I wanted to finish with a look at Ezekiel, Daniel, and Revelation, because those are the books that are most critical to end times mm. preaching and teaching, and talk about their original historical contexts, the audiences that received this material, and uh, a final form reading of those books that gives people at least uh, a leg up when it comes to how you would preach or teach this this material. Hmm. Awesome. So a lot of fun stuff was in the book um, for scholarly reasons, but also uh, for my own personal reasons. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention is that a while back, I got a, a random end times book. I, I like to collect them kind of as a joke, but I like to collect them because they're just like, you know, it's just a different culture. <laughs> and I, I I got this one because it's it's like Armageddon, oil, and the Middle East crisis. And it's yeah. like, that just sounds so cliche, right? You know, mm -hmm. that's, that's the stuff, right? Um, but I, yeah, I had no idea what it was. And then mm -hmm. you mentioned it in the book, and I was like, 
that sounds really familiar. Do I have that on my shelf? <laughs> I was like, it all makes sense now. And you said this was, this was given to George W. Bush, right? Yes, the White was House. This one? Yep, that's the one during the first Gulf War. Uh, the White House ordered copies of that book when the first war in Iraq uh, broke out. And so I don't think it was, you know, read at the Pentagon, but I think it was, <laughs> I think it was more, you know, the White House, you know, this, this represented a certain constituency of the Bush administration, uh -huh. and they wanted to understand, you know, what they were thinking is my assumption. But yeah. Ah. Oh, that's fascinating. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, I just I had no idea that book had so much significance. Yeah, it sold yeah. millions and millions of copies. So. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's awesome. All right. What is dispensationalism? Yeah, as I said, it's a, a theological system. And it really, in its modern form, it arises in the 19th century, uh, springs from the mind and thinking of a guy named John Nelson Darby, who was this uh, uh, one of the early founders of the Plymouth, what became the Plymouth Brethren movement. He was a, uh, mm -hmm. just a tireless preacher and teacher. And uh, he developed this idea. Some people will say, many dispensationalists will say it goes back to the early church uh, in some form or another. But re in, its, in the way we understand dispensationalism today, it springs from, from the 19th mm -hmm. century. And uh, it's basically a way of looking at history and scripture in a way into, into understanding the Bible so that it sees all of history is divided up into eras or dispensations or economies in which God decides to relate to human beings in a very specific way at, in a very specific time. So for example, at Sinai, God gives the law to his people Israel. So he's working through Israel to reach the world and he's doing so through the law. And the way you connect with God is to obey, obey the law. And in the mm -hmm. dispensation that we are in, the church age, uh, God is working through the body of Christ, the church. And he's working through what Christ did on the cross uh, to bring us salvation. And mm -hmm. in, in the future, in the millennium, he's going to work in, by ruling directly. Christ will rule directly um, for a thousand years and then there'll be rebellion afterwards and within each of these periods there's a cycle that repeats and it's god reaches out to human beings and human beings connect some don't connect eventually people reject god's overture and uh, god has to judge but there is a re righteous remnant at the end of each uh, period and then the the next dispensation uh sort of mm. kicks in and it's it's important for end times because dispensationalism as opposed to say uh, covenant theology dispensationalism sees a, a very marked distinction between uh, Israel and the church and it sees Israel as having a distinct identity as God's earthly people and so they're going to be present and God working through them on the earth in the future which is why there's such an emphasis on Israel supporting the state of Israel, Israel in the last days, mm. all eyes focused yeah. on the Middle East and that sort of thing. And there are other differences uh, or distinctives as well, but that's basically it. End times isn't, doesn't capture everything about dispensationalism. It's just kind of the thing that sticks out the most. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Okay. So uh, we might be jumping all over the place here, <laughs> but so yeah, a really, really interesting point you made in your book 
is the difference between prophecy and apocalyptic. Mm -hmm. So you know, apocalyptic is probably like a brand new term to most people. But, um, you know, obviously a big part of this is prophecy, like, you know, being able to predict the future, the, the end times, you're predicting it. Um, but <clears throat> you made a point in your book to say that a lot of these books that are used to predict the future are apocalyptic. And I guess the point was that, you know, you there's no um, predicting the future in apocalyptic. So obviously, like if you're if you have the wrong genre, you're going to you're going to make the wrong interpretation. So can you explain the difference there so people can understand and like what are the prophecy books? What are the apocalyptic and help people understand like how that applies to the Bible? Sure. Um, I wouldn't say that there's no predicting the future in apocalyptic, okay. but it's it's not the dominant feature of, of that. Okay. Um, so prophecy and apocalyptic are both literary genres that one mm -hmm. finds in the Old Testament, and they can be at the level of a, a verse, a chapter, an entire book, and often they're just, they're mixed. So Ezekiel has both of those genres. Okay. And, but by and large, uh, in my understanding, the prophecy uh, exists. It's it's a it's a, a genre of covenant warning, right? Um, and so it's kind of like uh, it's a literature like a smoke detector, where uh, God is warning His people that they've gone off the rails, and they need a course correction and they need to do it fast. And that's what the the kind of message the prophets bring. And so they are working from. Uh, covenant curses and blessings that everybody in Israel understood because they were in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and it's hmm. formulaic language that everybody understood. And the pronouncements that the prophets made were uh, Im impositions of this covenant language of curse or blessing. And when it was cursed, you get all the blessings front loaded all at once if you're in relationship with God in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But if you if you start to stray from from what God wants for you, then in increments, these curses can apply. And as hmm. soon as you recognize that you have disobeyed and you change your ways, then that curse ends. But if you keep on in your disobedience, you go through this whole incremental list until you're exiled from the land, which is the ultimate covenant curse. And so that's a genre that you find in the Old Testament in contexts where Israel was in the land or they had some control over their their existence, right? So there's still something for them to lose. They can be warned and then get pulled back from, from the, uh, the threat of invasion or exile or, or mm -hmm. whatever. Apocalyptic is different. It's kind of a, a genre of not just comfort, but hope, uh, encouraging people to, to hang in there and uh, endure the kind of suffering that they're experiencing. And it's a genre where you can imagine Israel's been exiled and they're now living in exile or the invaders come and they're in the land, but they're under the oppressive boot of a foreign invader. And they realize, wow, we messed up and we did sin and we suffered these covenant uh, curses and punishments as a result of that. And now they've turned back to God, but nothing happens. And they're still under oppression and they're still suffering. They're still being persecuted. And apocalyptic uh, speaks to that kind of context where the people realize they messed up 
and they're obedient and they're but they're being persecuted and abused and now the the uh, author of this of apocalyptic material is speaking to them saying you know this is how you endure god is going to rescue you and there may be prediction of future rescue for them so there can be future prediction but um it's uh, it's not far off in both cases both both in both genres apocalyptic mm-hmm. and particularly prophecy the uh, prediction is near term because in prophecy it's there to convince people to change their ways and near-term consequences that we are going to experience really soon are more persuasive than you know consequences that are put off way in the future just like a deadline that's way off in the future isn't something we care much about Um, so most prophetic prediction is near term not in the distant future although there are exceptions to that of course Hmm, okay so you've explained the difference um you, you know obviously the person listening that you know has a different view is going to say, okay, like, why would you come to that conclusion? So is that because, you know, I know that there's a lot of other apocalyptic texts outside the Bible, and maybe you're making an argument there, or is there specific things in the Bible where you're like, yeah, this is definitely clearly different. Can Mm -hmm. you help us understand that? Sure. Uh, On the prophecy side of things, uh, everybody, you want to understand prophecy, go to your Bible, turn to Leviticus 26, and photocopy that chapter and then take your <laughs> okay. color take your colored pencils and the first half where it talks about blessings you know highlight that then when it talks mm-hmm. about cursings highlight that and then go through each of those and highlight the things that come about as a result of blessing and the consequences that god brings to bear that are the result of of his cursing uh, or punishment and then have that tucked in your Bible. And whenever you're reading a prophetic book, look for that vocabulary. It just pops up all over the place. And you realize that these predictive oracles are really applications uh, to Israel's near future, typically, of these covenant curses, right? And people hearing them understand, oh, he's imposing a covenant curse on us. Um, he's not just talking about something odd that's going to happen in the future. They knew exactly what was was mm. going on. So that aspect of prophecy is really clear as to what it does. And as as you said, with apocalyptic, there are other examples of apocalyptic literature. You have First Enoch and and other um, <clears throat> other apocalyptic uh, works that are outside of the Bible. And then you have snippets of it inside. And one of the the helpful things is that. The book of Revelation is called an apocalypse, and so it it self-identifies as apocalyptic literature. And then what uh, one scholar named Collins uh, went and did uh, is he, he went through and looked at, you know, what are the things that you find as characteristic features of, of Revelation? And then how does this compare? Where do you see that in other types of literature? And... Uh, put together sort of a roster of features that I, I talk about in the book um, that help you identify apocalyptic literature. Hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so you have prophecy where, you know, there's, it's obviously in a, in a covenant context with blessings and curses. And then you have apocalyptic where, 
there's clearly other, you know, texts inside and outside the Bible that are apocalyptic, not prophecy. And you're saying, hey, you know, it, it matches these. So that that obviously must be the same genre. Okay. So um, in your book, you described four misconceptions about prophecy and prophets that were really helpful for me. Uh, can mm -hmm. you talk about those for us? Sure. Uh, these are things that I just sort of, uh, you know, noticed uh, over the years, and I suppose picked up from from elsewhere in uh, in ways I can't remember. But there are four <laughs> things that uh, just struck me about uh, prophecy. The first misconception is that uh, prophetic prediction is all about foretelling really surprising things. You know, big bizarre events. So it's kind of like, you know, those headlines pulled from the, the pages of the National yeah. Enquirer in the grocery uh, checkout. And we tend to think about prophecy as being big, spectacular events. And certainly, Hal Lindsey, I don't have him on my desk right now, but, you know, he'll talk about these sorts of, uh, of things. Um, but prophecy was was not about just predicting things in the future. It was, as I said, a covenant. It was a literature of covenant warning. The prophets were there to, you know, say to the people when they were doing great things, yeah, God's going to, is, is blessing you because of this. But more often than not, in the pages of the Old Testament, we, we get the bad <laughs> yeah. news, right? It's when Israel strays and he has to set God sends mm -hmm. a prophet to say, listen, you guys are way out of line. And, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm working on Amos right now. And it's just, it's such a downer book in some ways, because it's just one thing after another. And it's a, it's a prophetic, uh, it, it's all about, uh, about warning. And the warnings that are being brought to bear are these things I mentioned from Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, where you've got lists of covenant blessings and covenant cursings. Mm. And this is sort of the, the feedstock of the prophets. They're, they're just always going back to these, especially the lists of covenant uh, curses. And one that pops up all the time is, uh, and you, you, once you know it, you, you recognize it in Leviticus 26, 22, where he says, you know, if you disobey me, I'm going to send wild animals and they will bereave you and the roads will be empty. And, and you see this in some biblical narrative and in prophets, we've got wild animals that appear where wild animals ought not to appear. So in oh. Amos, he says, what's the day of the Lord going to be like? It's going to be like a guy who is out and about on the road and he runs into a lion and he freaks out and he, ch he runs away from the lion and he runs smack into a bear. And he escapes the bear <laughs> and he gets home, he slams the door closed and he puts his hand on the wall and a snake bites him and he's a wow. he's a dead right and it's like all of these are are animals that should not be there and they they end up bringing death mm -hmm. and that's one of the covenant curses and you find that in prophetic oracles other things from those passages so those are things that aren't in the distant future they're warnings about what is going to happen to israel in their near future and that's the second misconception is that prophecy is all about prediction of things in the distant future. And, and we kind of get that from, uh, you know, the popular end times teaching that focuses on the Middle East and 
the way it interprets Revelation and Daniel and such to focus on events that are future to us. But and but there is future prediction. So we have something like Isaiah 53, right, which is a messianic uh, passage that predicts uh, Christ and his suffering on the cross for us. And so there are things that in prophecy that are really future prediction. Um, but for the most part, as a as a genre of covenant warning, again, you you respond to consequences that are near term. And so if a prophet is speaking to Israel and he says, you've you've messed up, you've got to change. He's not going to say, unless you change in a thousand years, this bad thing is going to happen. Right. It's it's a consequence that his audience is going to um, experience. And so those covenant curses are all things that Israel would experience in the near term. Famine, pestilence, uh, the sword, uh, invaders coming against you, um, you know, wild animals attacking you when you're out traveling on the road and, and things like that. Mm. Um, because it's those sorts of immediate consequences that cause us cause us to to change our ways. And then the third misconception is that false prophets were just simply prophets that messed up their predictions and didn't quite dot their I's or cross their T's. <laughs> they got something wrong. They said something was going to happen on a Friday. It happened on a Thursday and such. And so death is the consequence, you know. So that's one of those misconceptions. And the idea of a false prophet, it, it's linked to, uh, it's reflected in the, the commandment that you shouldn't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, right? That's mm -hmm. not about swearing. It's about saying things and then saying, thus says the Lord, or thus says Yahweh. So you can go through, you know, the prophets, and at the end of almost every oracle, you hear, well, at the beginning of an oracle, thus says Yahweh, thus says the Lord, and then the prophet gives an oracle. And then at the end, he'll say, a declaration of the Lord, or thus says the Lord. And this is a way of saying, you know, my words are God's words to you, right? And if you are doing that, and you're telling a lie, then you're lying about uh, what God is, the direction God is giving his people. And if you're lying about what God wants his people to do, you're setting that people on a path that leads to death and destruction. And that makes you a theological mass murderer, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why the death penalty existed, death by stoning for those people who were false prophets, because they were lying in the name of God in a way that led Israel's people to, mm -hmm. to destruction. And then the last one, which is kind of surprising, is that not every prophetic utterance is necessarily going to come to pass. Or at least mm -hmm. that's the 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 uh, misconception is that that every prophetic utterance will come to pass. That scripture is reliable, which it is, and pro prophecy is reliable, which it is, but that it will always come to pass in this specific detail. And uh, scripture really sort of says otherwise. Uh, so, for example, Jeremiah 18, Jeremiah goes to the potter's house and God gives him a little object lesson. He watches the potter and the potter makes a pot. And then partway through, the potter looks at it, stops the wheel and then smashes up the clay and then starts over. 
And that becomes an illustration for what God is going to do with his people in that he says to Jeremiah, you know, I can pronounce blessing on my people, but if they decide, oh, great, we're forgiven. God says he's going to bless us. We can do what we want now. And this is our get out of jail free card. So we can go party hardy and, and, and get into all sorts of trouble and disobey God. Well, no, that's, that's not the way it works. You cannot get God on a technicality is what he's saying in that passage. And by the same token, uh, on the other hand, if you are, if God says, I'm going to judge you and I'm going to punish you. And then you realize, Oh, yikes, we really messed up. And you turn with contrite hearts and you uh, ask God's forgiveness and you change your ways, then God is not going to follow through on, on, on his punishment because you have responded to, to his uh, condemnation and you have, have uh, changed your ways. And so this is what we have in the book of Jonah. Jonah is sent into Nineveh 40 days. Nineveh will be overturned and the Ninevites spontaneously from the lowest level of society up to the top, they turn in obedience and in uh, uh, in begging for forgiveness, and God uh, forgives them and spares them from from judgment. So God always reserves the right to forgive, and you can't get God on a technicality. Is is uh, what's going on there? And so yeah. there might be some prophecy that on the surface looks like, oh, this spells doom for the people, and that may have had a shelf life that expired because the people actually uh, turned in obedience to God and, and it avoided that uh, that prophetic condemnation. Fascinating. Okay. So a big set of verses that is talked about in this discussion is, is Isaiah and the new heavens and the new earth. Hmm. So uh, one, can you talk about the, the typical arguments that are brought up in this discussion um, you know, help people understand, you know, the relevance behind that. And um, yeah, maybe you can just start with that. Yeah. So um, you were mentioning Isaiah uh, 11 and uh, 35. Mm. And those are two, uh, uh, two passages that within dispensationalism in, uh, if you're looking, if you're reading in uh, Things to Come, which was Dwight Pentecost's just magisterial work on everything to do with dispensationalism. Um, and in the Ryrie, not the Ryrie Study Bible, but um, the New Schofield Reference Bible as well, they would identify both of those passages as uh, part of the millennium, not the new heaven and the new earth, but dispensationalists would see both those passages as representative of the millennium. And the way they get there is um, is simply that you know, you've got things in those passages that just don't seem to be right. They're not, it's not normal description of human or, or natural activity. So hmm. in chapter 11, you've got, um, uh, after it talks about a, a shoot coming up from the stump of Jesse, it goes on in verse six to talk about the wolf will lie down with the lamb yeah. and the leopard lies down with the goat. Actually, it's the wolf will sojourn with the lamb. It's, it's a word that means um, uh, a sojourn is like a refugee. Uh, they've, they, they're temporarily dwelling somewhere else where that's not their natural home. And so wolves and lambs do not 
normally live together, but that's what's happening here. And it, it continues, the cow feeds with the bear, the lion will eat straw like the ox and, and so on. And this has never happened before. And so Pentecost and others would say, you know, we've never seen this kind of camaraderie among animals and uh, it's odd. And so this must be the millennium where everything's perfect and back to the conditions of the Garden of Eden and uh, animals getting along with each other. Mm-hmm. And if you jump to chapter 35, you have the wilderness will rejoice and blossom. The, like the crocus, the wilderness will burst into uh, bloom and it talks about um, uh, uh, no lion will be there again wild animals are going to disappear and so on and so again uh, dispensationalists say well that's we haven't seen the desert blooming um, and uh, but uh, so this must be the kind of thing that's going to happen Uh, during the millennium. Although some would also say, well, this is uh, a fulfillment of prophecy now that Israel is back in the land and they have irrigation and the Negev, you know, is irrigated and the desert is literally, literally blooming. And so uh, there are these odd expressions and images that dispensationalism finds that it uh, understands to be a descriptive of something that we haven't seen and that gets identified with the millennium but when you're when you're looking at scripture you want to think about context and first and foremost and so this is from the book of Isaiah and Isaiah is a really complicated complicated book and uh, I struggle with Isaiah but the the prophet Isaiah is a guy who ministers to Judah in the 8th century BC starts around 740 BC and it's a time it's the tail end of the golden years of the good King Uzziah uh, of Judah and Jeroboam II of Israel uh, and they get together they cooperate and everything is spectacular militarily politically economically for them but when Uzziah dies in 740 that's kind of a marker for a, a shifting point because what's going on to the north in Assyria? Assyria has been in confusion and disarray up to this point. But now this king Tiglath-Pileser III comes to the throne and Assyria is back, baby. And they, they get their armies together and they head towards the coast of the Mediterranean and they take a left and they start heading south bit by bit, kingdom after kingdom. And by 722 BC, the kingdom of Israel is going to cease to exist. Mm-hmm. And in 701 BC, Judah itself is going to come to it, come under attack and almost just, it's going to escape uh, by the skin of its uh, teeth. And so in the chapter before chapter 11, God says he's going to judge Assyria. And in chapter 11, um, he talks about a shoot coming up out of the stump of Jesse, which says that um, and here scholars have a hard time pegging this. Uh, some might say that it's um, after this um, uh, difficulty in 701 BC where uh, Judah almost ceases to exist. Some would say this has to do with the exile and is much later and so on. Um, but that uh, 
what what many scholars would understand is that what you have here is this prophetic hyperbolic language of covenant blessing and covenant curse hmm. and so chapter 11 is talking about a period where israel is under covenant blessing once more and the prophet conveys that by talking about the rolling back of the curse of leviticus 26 22 and the imposition of the blessing of Leviticus 26.6, which is uh, wild animals are not going to torment you or terrorize you anymore. And he just doesn't repeat it verbatim from Leviticus. Uh, the prophets are always sort of supercharging their language uh, in very colorful and dramatic ways. And so he goes through this checklist of, of animals that are suddenly, you know, BFFs and... Uh, and then when you get to chapter 35, you have something similar going on. Um, but here in chapter 30, so the wilderness will rejoice and blossom. One of the things that happens as a description of um, exile, the exile removes the people from the land and the land goes fallow and, you know, tumbleweeds blow through the temple and the city streets and the the fields are no longer cultivated and jackals start to inhabit the the cities and the ruins and that sort of thing. But this is a situation where now all of that starts to be reversed and the, the land is no longer forlorn and it's attended to again and it goes from desert to productive agricultural land so that the wilderness starts to to blossom again and people start to travel. And it says down in verse 9, chapter 35, verse 9, no lion is found there. So that covenant curse of wild animals taking over, that's reversed as well. And it says also in verse 10, the ransomed of the Lord shall return. So this is exiles returning. So chapter 35 to me is something that looks forward to using that prophetic language of uh, hyper, hyperbolic blessing a covenant blessing that this is a time God's going to uh, re, uh, lead the people back from captivity into the land and he's going to bless them there once more. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that, that's clearly the context of, of exile. So that's, 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 that's a, that's a good, uh, good point there. So, <clears throat> Let's talk about Daniel and Revelation, okay? So you've already talked about how there is you know, a certain type of literature that is mostly, or it's it's apocalyptic, but it's it's the 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 predicting the future isn't the focus. Mm -hmm. But you know, obviously, Daniel it seems to obviously predict the future with the with the the statue and mm -hmm. and I mean it predicts it right. Right, correctly, right, and then you have Revelation. So, which you know, it's all over the place. So, help us understand because that's going to sound really crazy to a lot of people that that you're saying that Revelation and Daniel aren't prophetic books, if if that is what you're saying. So, can you tell people about that? Why you think that? Yes, I, I again, I I think there is pr prediction in both Daniel and in a Revelation. Uh, Jesus calls Daniel a prophet, and uh, Revelation, while it describes itself as an apocalypse, also talks about 
it as being prophecy. So there is some an element of prediction to it, but that's okay. not the dominant uh, aspect or characteristic. I don't think of of mm. either either book. Um, and so with um, with a uh, where should I begin, Daniel or or Revelation? Um, Let's go with Revelation, since you already talked a little bit about that. Okay, um, so you want to start with the context of each uh, setting, right? Who is the audience that's being addressed? And so Revelation addresses these seven churches in Western Asia that are talked about in the first three chapters, and that's usually where preachers go and where they end if they're doing a series on on revelation and sometimes we treat them as very separate from the rest of the a rest of the book um, but I think they're really close intimately connected with what goes on in the rest of the book this is a, a, a setting where you've got people who are followers of Jesus and they're living in a an area of the Roman Empire that was hardcore committed to emperor worship, worshiping the, the Roman state as it was personified in the goddess Roma. Everything about being a good citizen in that in that part of the Roman Empire meant, you know, you strived to worship the emperor. Cities actually competed for the honor of having a temple dedicated to an emperor and hmm. such and uh, and the roman state was a goddess and so there were temples to the roman state so everything about being a good citizen meant doing something you could not do as a follower of jesus who was hmm. the one true king for you and so this uh, uh led to a lot of persecution of the the early church and even those um and a lot of these these early christians were were jews who had come to accept jesus as their messiah and they were still in many cases associated with the synagogue but the jews who had their own history in this part of the world had come to sort of an accommodation and uh, uh sort of a, a live and let live uh don't ask don't tell kind of uh accommodation with uh society and they weren't keen to be associated with these Christians who were uh, not ones to join in with the, the civic religion. And on top of that, worshipped someone who they said was their God, but who had been crucified as a revolutionary by the Roman authorities, right? So sometimes they were, the Christians were getting it from the Romans. Sometimes they were getting it from their uh, their Jewish uh, uh, brothers mm. and sisters. And so they're under persecution, and the book is is one that addresses that uh, that challenge that they're facing as people who are being persecuted for their faith and for whom uh, John says it's going to get worse. And so what do you do in that setting? And in that setting, again, you don't bring comfort by saying, in 2,000 years, trust me, everything's going to be okay. Hmm. You bring comfort by encouraging people in the midst of their suffering. And it's hmm. not a pretty message at times. It's a really gut-wrenching message because it says, 
to some of them, some of you people are going to die. You're going to be murdered for your faith and you're going to die. Uh, but, um, and this occurs throughout the central part of Revelation, at key moments of challenge and persecution, you almost have a, the channel turns and you're in the throne room of heaven. And there is this lamb who looks like it was slain. There's something about this lamb, a wound or whatever, that tells you this was this thing was at one time dead, but now it's alive. And this lamb is the God we serve, and it was dead and is now alive. And this is the God who has the power over death and over hell. So there's nothing that can happen to us that is going to have uh, an eternal consequence that God can't, a consequence that God can't fix. They can kill us, but God can make us alive again because Christ died and rose again and such. Mm -hmm. And so you get that, uh, that encouragement and that, um, that message of stay, stay with God, stay faithful throughout everything, uh, in the midst of your suffering. Um, not because of something that is promised about what's going to happen in the distant, distant future, but it's about something that uh, God has already done for you. He's died, he's rose, risen again, and he's, he's giving you eternal life as well. And with Daniel, you get something slightly different. I can send you an image if that helps uh, later on. But it's um, there you have this people, and I think Daniel... Uh, includes a lot of earlier material, but is directed specifically to Jews who are suffering in Palestine under Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century BC. And they're being persecuted by their Greek, uh, Greek rulers, Seleucid mm -hmm. rulers. And there, the message again is not, you know, if you're saying that the message of Daniel is all about our future, the future you and I will experience, uh, potentially, uh, that doesn't bring any comfort to someone who was suffering in the second century, or if you have the traditional view of dating of Daniel in the fifth century, uh, sixth century BC, um, that would be kind of a cruel joke, um, to say, you know, you know, buck up because everything's going to be great 3000 years from now or 2000 years from now or whenever it is in yeah. the future. Um, and so what happens there is there's a kind of a retelling in the in the mouth of of the the designated author Daniel. So I'm my understanding of the book of Daniel is it's written by a person, anonymous author, we don't know who he or she was to this second century audience, but he's using Daniel as the spokesperson. Because Daniel is a guy who knew all about persecution, right? So mm -hmm. He was in uh, captivity in a foreign land. He wasn't even in his own own land. He was in a foreign land, forced to work for a foreign uh, pagan king, and he suffered because of his faith and was persecuted for it. So he has the street cred to be this spokesperson. And in Daniel, you have in multiple points these sort of reviews of uh history from the perspective of the audience that's hearing this in the second century mm -hmm. it's put out as future from the mouth of daniel uh but it tells this story of kingdoms that 
God has allowed to exist, and they rise and they fall, and they rise and they fall, and God, you know, allows them to exist and then brings them low, and so on. And you get this um, this story of uh, of future kingdoms relative to the Daniel of the of the, the literary Daniel of the book, um, but they're past from the perspective of the audience, and the audience is thinking. You know, the problem the audience has is if you say to them, don't worry, things are going to get better. Who, who are they going to believe you? Right. You don't. Why should they? Why should they believe you? But as they now hear Daniel talking about these kingdoms, they recognize these kingdoms as ones God had disposed of. And God's God's own kingdom supersedes those God is very much in control of the world, even if it doesn't seem that way. And so bit by bit, they start to see, oh, yeah, other people have suffered before for their faith. And they've experienced this. And God has intervened and dealt a blow to the, the oppressor and to this, this kingdom. And they gradually get to the point of their own era. And it's obvious that they're talking about the situation that they are in right now. And then they move to the future that moves to the future. And you have God saying, I am going to destroy this Antiochus Epiphanes. He may be threatening now, but he's going to be judged, whether it's through Gabriel or Michael. Um, it's going to be God's hand that brings this person down. And mm -hmm. so it apocalyptic in that sense contextualizes things for the audience that's hearing this message so they know ah yes i get it god's been here been there and done that and if he's been there and done that multiple times throughout history mm. now that i'm in a similar situation why isn't why wouldn't he do that for me as well and that gives them reason to hear that prediction of the downfall of their oppressor and trust it for the promise from God that it actually is. So it's it's there's not a huge amount of predictive element to it, but it's clearly there because it promises God's intervention in this case in their future. And you find that in chapter seven and chapter eight and chapter eleven and twelve in in bits and pieces multiple times through the through the book. Hmm. Okay, so you know that's that's going to be difficult for some people to take in because. It's like it says this is a story about Daniel, but you know it's written much later, uh, not it's obviously not written by Daniel, and that almost seems like deceiving. Uh, could you talk about that? How you understand that? Yeah, and it it's you're exactly right, and this is one of the things that uh, in the early 20th century the fundamentals, which were these. Uh, booklets of essays that you can <laughs> yeah. now buy in in four volumes as a reprint. Uh, that's one of the things that they addressed was the the uh, sixth century date of of Daniel and and such. Because if if it was all you know, a lot of critical scholars at the time were saying, "Well, this is not. It's all prophecy after the fact. It's just all made. It's not. You know, it's there's nothing spectacular about it." The the writer was writing in the, the second century and all this is history and he's just kind of faking and pretending it's it's mm -hmm. future. And the the approach that I've tried to lay out in the book and and here tonight is uh, 
is that it's it's not that uh, it's not that crass or that simple. It's uh, it's a way of helping people understand the trustworthiness of God's prediction. Um, and so this is something that I, as a young Christian, and even in my as as I got older, was was problematic for me. You know because it seems like, oh, well, God's just a big fat liar. And the prophets are just, you know, these writers are just trying to pull the wool over our eyes and they're doing something dodgy and that sort of thing. And uh, God isn't a liar. And the prophets weren't liars. And the writers of scriptures weren't, uh, scripture weren't liars either. Um, and so it really comes down to how we understand ancient genres and how they were used relative to what our expectations are, right? And so in the case of uh, something like ancient history writing, that was very different. The expectations, literary expectations around ancient history writing were very different from how we would, what we would expect from a history book today, where we expect to open a book and to read a chronological uh, detailed analysis with footnotes of what happened and, and exactly when and who was involved. And ancient history historians didn't write just to relate what happened. They were trying to convince you of something. They had a story to tell and a point to make. And they were actually within the within their uh, literary uh, rules and expectations, they felt quite um, uh, quite at liberty not to be exhaustive. They would leave things out if it didn't support their um, uh, uh, the point they wanted to make. And they would sometimes actually rearrange the order of things in order to make their point more effectively. Um, it would be, um, so some things in, in, in the Old Testament, you know, Omri was a great king of the, of, of the northern kingdom of Israel. He gets like seven verses in, in, in second Kings and his son, Ahab, who was kind of a flunky by comparison to his dad, he gets chapter after chapter. And it's because he, Ahab is a better example of what the author of Kings is trying to, to relate, which is if you disobey God, bad things are going to happen to you. Omri disobeyed God, but he was pretty successful. So it's, you know, he doesn't get as much, you know, press as, as the son <laughs> Ahab does. Mm. Um, and so histories were more like oil paintings. Ancient histories were more like oil paintings than photographs. And when it comes to uh, apocalyptic, um, you have a, a characteristic that you sometimes get, not always, in that uh, pseudonymity. So someone writing in the name of another person. So in the in the case of the Revelation, the book of Revelation, it's written by by John, and and I have no reason to believe that it was written by anyone other than mm -hmm. than who the book declares was the author. In in uh, the book of uh, Daniel, the author is given as as Daniel of the sixth century as this Babylonian exile because he's the guy that has the street cred to tell the story. And it is this kind of thing happens enough that I can't imagine that the first hearers of this would have 
thought there was an attempt to deceive. Again, it's such a it's a literary technique that is used enough that you have to imagine that, uh, especially when all of a sudden a book appears and it's in the mouth of Daniel, and Daniel has been dead for centuries, or Enoch, for example. So you have this uh, book of First Enoch that uh, Enoch is taken and uh, uh, he doesn't die. He, uh, he, God, it says uh, God took him and he, and he was not because God took him. So he doesn't die and go where everybody else goes when they die to Sheol, the underworld. He goes to heaven. So in the book that bears his name, he is the tour guide for heaven. He's the perfect guide to tell people where the four winds are kept and, and all of these other things and to reveal these heavenly mysteries. And, um, uh, you have other apocalypses and other other books that are written in the name of other people, but it's it's always because that figure is well suited to the message of the of the book. It's not so much that oh, how do we trick these people into believing what I you know believing what I want to tell them? It's more that this is just an appropriate spokesperson for this, and um, and it was just one of those literary genres and literary techniques that existed now as time goes on and as you get farther and farther culturally away as we are you start to be you lose awareness of what these genres did and and why and how widely their techniques were understood by the audience Mm -hmm. and so i'm sure there are people uh, that felt deceived by this literary technique but I don't think that's the original intention uh, of things. Hmm. Fascinating. Okay, so uh, what the uh, interesting question for you. So uh, you said, you know, prophecy isn't the focus of Revelation. Um, I want two questions. One, like what, how much prophecy is in there? Like what is that prophecy specifically, if you think there is any? And two, how do you understand that considering Revelation 1.3 says, blessed is the one who reads about the words of this prophecy. Mm-hmm. So, it, I mean, it seems like it should be, uh, it's, it's the very start of the book. It's, yep. it's like the intro. Why would this entire book not be about prophecy if it specifically says that? Right. And so, again, it's, it's not prophecy in the sense of, uh, well, there is some correction to it. Um, if you read, you know, John, Jesus speaking to the churches does offer correction for some of these, uh, these churches, right? He says, you know, you're doing this, don't do that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and he issues warnings about beware this person Jezebel and so on and so forth. (laughs) Um, And then he talks about things that are soon to take place, right? So in keeping with uh, prophet, uh, prophetic genre, uh, it's not a distant prediction. Typically it's a nearer term prediction. So he's preparing them for something that's going to happen in their near future. And so I see most of the middle of the book as relating to what these churches are going to experience in the near term. So in that sense, it is, uh, it has a prophetic quality to it. And then especially at the end of the book where you're look, you are looking to, something in the distant future with the return, the physical return of Jesus and the ushering in of the new heaven and the new earth and the destruction of Satan 
and the beast and uh, and of death itself, which is wonderful, and then eternity stretching out uh, into the future for God and the people who have uh, who have declared themselves to be his followers and are covered by the blood of Christ. And so that's clearly in the future. But in the middle of the book, you get a lot of material that is apocalyptic in character. Um, in the sort of images it, it uses, it, it incorporates almost all of the characteristics of apocalyptic, except uh, that it's, it's not uh, pseudonymous. And um, uh, so it, it, I think it combines both, but it's not taken up with, you know, what is going to happen in Israel relative to Russia in the Middle East today and that sort of thing. It was, it was stuff that related, I think, and this is where a lot of good Christians disagree on how to, to read Revelation. Um, but I'm, my sense of the, of the book is that it's the middle part of it, especially is speaking to the things that lie in the future for this, these churches and their, um, what it does, it's a, it's a cosmic battle, right? It's a, you get in scripture moments where God peels back the curtain and you see between our world and the next world. And so this happens to Jacob where he's at Bethel and he falls asleep. He has the dream and God shows him the, the stairway going to heaven and angels streaming back and forth and so on. And that tells him, that's God's way of telling Jacob, you don't need to, to try and fix everything. You don't need to scheme to get your way. I've got everything in hand. My messengers are constantly at work in the world, doing my bidding, carrying out my, uh, my orders and desires and so on. And that's kind of what you get in Revelation, uh, a similar peeling back of the curtain. And you realize, because a lot of the stuff that you find in one to three, the vocabulary of that, if you read the book is, if people read the book, is reflected in the central part of mm -hmm. this of this book and it's it's like god saying you know the kind of things that are going on in your churches that you think maybe ah it's inconsequential this this problem i'm dealing with or this sin mm -hmm. in my life or this isn't much of a danger over here uh god is is saying through through john he's peeling back that curtain and showing you know there's a cosmic battle behind everything that's going on in your life your spiritual life in this world there's a a sense of a case of cosmic warfare going on. Um, and so it's kind of like, again, in Job, you get the similar peeling back where, except Job doesn't really know about it, but Job has this issue on earth and it's reflective of a battle going on in heaven between the Satan and God, where the Satan says to God, you know, Job, you, he just loves you because you give him all sorts of stuff. And if you took it away, he'd curse you to your face. And God says, no, that's not true. And so the experience that Job has in the world, if he listens to his friends who say, God's given you a bad deal, you just need to, you know, admit to sin you haven't committed, or his wife says, curse God and die. If he does either of those things, he's proving Satan's point. And so Job doesn't know it. But there's a spiritual battle going on uh, behind the things that he is experiencing. And I think that's what's going on in, um, 
in the book of Revelation as well. Hmm. Yeah, really fascinating. Lo and behold, fellow Israelites, is anybody out there? That's better. Okay, Dr. Brian Irwin has, in his abundant wisdom, offered up to bestow upon one blessed soul his book, After Dispensationalism. Dive deep into prophecies, the end times, and deciphering the mysteries of Revelation. The contest commences on the 3rd of November and concludes on the 24th. To join this divine lottery, inscribe upon the comments of my interview with Dr. Brian Irwin your desired teachings, or video topics, you wish for me to share in times to come. And no, Parting the Red Sea 101 is not an option and you must be subscribed to the channel to win. May your chances be better than finding a lost sheep in the desert. Good luck. So, last question for you here. You have, uh, you've talked about um, how, you know, the, the context of the people that a text is written to is just very important if we're going to understand, you know, what the purpose of the text is. You know, at the same time, though, you, you do think that there is some prophecy involved and I could just hear some people saying, hey, if there is, you know, if there's some prophecy and it's it's possible, like, you know, why, why does it have to be important for the specific writers or the specific context? Like, it still could be and, you know, maybe it wouldn't be as relieving for them specifically, but... But it it obviously could still could have prophecy. It still could tell the end times. And um, why why are you so convinced that just the context is just so important there? I, the cynical person might say that the 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 need to uh, you know the urging to study context and understand the original context of scripture is just uh, something dreamed up by the big seminary lobby right? The seminary industrial complex. We want everybody to go to seminary. Uh, and, and so we come up with this. But it's, you know, these books were written to, um, to ancient audiences in very specific settings. I mean, it's very widely different settings throughout the Old and New Testaments. And they were written, uh, you know, if, if God has integrity, and I think, I think God does, you know, uh, he wrote these books and gave them to an audience because the message was first and foremost to them and it met their needs and met them where they were at in their world and in their living. It can still have relevance for us, but uh, it wasn't written initially to us. It's for us, but it wasn't originally written to us. And so we need to understand what the original audience was going through as much as we can, because um, it's not always obvious, but we have to do our best. And, uh, and then understand, you know, what was the meaning for them? And then how do we get from there to our setting? And I like the, you know, the things that Haddon Robinson and, uh, you know, who used to be at Dallas and was at a number, number of other places and, and Douglas Stewart, who's been at Gordon Conwell for years and whose work I just really love. Um, and Alan Ross, who was at, I think, Dallas as well and has been elsewhere. And there are people who 
say, you know, you want to understand the original context and you want to understand what that message was and you want to identify what is the timeless principle that uh, is at the core of that initial application. And then you take that principle and find an appropriate context uh, in our life where the principle applies, but perhaps not the absolute specific application for that original audience. It might be the same, it might be, might be different, but you want to identify what that principle is and, and reapply it. When you take, when you just sort of jump from the text and then jump to our world right now, you lose all kind of control over, over scripture. You're taking scripture out of its moorings and you're, uh, you're, removing the guardrails for interpretation mm -hmm. that, that are there to give you, to give you guidance. Um, but sometimes the, the original, the authors of scripture do reapply. Like I wouldn't want to say that scripture just has one single application for that original audience and none other, because, you know, in Matthew, you get him, Matthew's always quoting old Testament passages saying, and so, and he's applying them to, uh, elements from Jesus' life saying, and so it was fulfilled from the mouth of the prophet, so-and-so saying. And you go back to that prophet, whether it be Micah or Joel or whomever, and you read what they have to say and you, you see, oh, no, this had an application first and foremost in the, in the time of the prophet themselves, but in an inspired way that the, the, the writer Matthew is uh, applying these passages often analogously to uh, a new setting and talking about how they are predictive of Christ, some aspect of, of Christ's uh, life. And in the early church, the, the people of Alexandria, the Christians in Alexandria, they read scripture very allegorically in a way that I know I'm not comfortable with, but <laughs> that was the, the way in which ancient Greek mythological text was interpreted, were interpreted uh, in their time. And it gave them credibility because they could use the tools that all their Greek neighbors were using and apply those to the Old Testament in their case and, uh, and the New Testament. And their neighbor, Greco-Roman neighbors, could use those same tools and read scripture and get things out of it as well. And so this kind of thing has happened in other contexts. And today, my colleagues at Wycliffe College, uh, one of their areas of emphasis is theological or spiritual interpretation, which does see multiple levels of meaning in scripture and how things can apply often Christologically from the Old Testament to, to today. So I wouldn't want to say that um, it's always just one thing, but um, I'm not an inspired writer of scripture. As, as lovely as this book is, uh, it's, I'm not an inspired writer of scripture. And so I'm very cautious about how I apply, apply scripture. Uh, I appreciate that sort of, um, sort of deliberate way in which you can move from original context to a principle and then apply that principle to our setting in a way that's mm -hmm. analogous. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, thank you so much for coming on here. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, everybody definitely stay tuned for the book giveaway. Um, any last words? 
you know, obviously your book, what else are you working on? Oh, I, well, I should mention my, my colleague, Tim Perry. If you look at closely at the top, it says Brian Irwin with Tim Perry. Oh. <laughs> and he's a, he's a fabulous guy. He's written a number of books for Lexham Press, who is the publisher of this book. Mm. And he's a wonderful uh, theologian, a, a public theologian, systematic theologian. Um, it, well worth tracking down anything he's, he's written. Um, some wonderful, if, if you're interested, if you have a need for doing funerals, he's written a fabulous book on care of the soul and, and all about uh, the role of funerals and such. He was a fabulous help in getting this across the finish line. I had just cool. ended up with analysis paralysis. I'd been through it a gazillion times, rewriting, rewriting. And he came in and uh, did a wonderful job of uh, doing a rewrite that cut out a whole bunch of stuff that didn't need to be there. And uh, <laughs> so I owe him a great, uh, a great debt. You can get the book through Lexham Press after dispensationalism.com will take you right to their website, but you can also find it on Amazon, Canada and the USA and, uh, and elsewhere. Awesome. Uh, what am I doing now? Am uh, Joel and Amos. I'm working on a commentary on Joel and Amos and I'm, I'm loving it, but I don't love the deadline I'm up against. And, uh, but that's what I'm, uh, that's what I'm doing right now. And awesome. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been yeah. lovely meeting you and you've got a, a great podcast with an awful lot of very interesting content, uh, awesome. there. So I'm uh, my, my Appreciate commute it. is going to include an awful lot of your stuff over the, over the coming months. <laughs> awesome. That's, that's great. Yeah. Um, leave a comment anytime you want. Um, and shout out to, yeah, shout out to Tim Perry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, thanks for that. Um, but yeah, anyways, it's been a pleasure having you on. Uh, thank you so much. And, uh, I, you know, I hope you have a great rest of your night. Thanks. Same to you.